have. Um, we have been talking about what this new life in Christ means, uh, what it means that uh, we were given new life. Uh, there's a lot of uh, implications in that. If you study Paul, uh, then you'll know Paul likes to uh, talk about the, the dichotomy, the two different um, old life versus new life. Um, he does that often in many of his books. Um, he puts those against each other, and he talks about the differences between old life and new life. And so we've begun to dive into the book of Colossians, and uh, I hope you're reading it throughout the week like we've talked about. Um, I strongly encourage you, read the chapter that we're going to study every day the week coming. I mean, these chapters probably, even if you're a slow reader like me, don't take you a whole five minutes to read through the chapter. So um, just be, you know, reading through them, digesting them, meditating on them, praying through them. Um, and I promise God will, the Holy Spirit will have much greater effect than my words will. Um, even though I truly believe my words, uh, I spend my week preparing words that I hope are His, um, just allowing the Holy Spirit to do that work in the quiet place of your heart and throughout your week is so much more powerful um, than anything else. We can't uh, imitate that. But uh, I hope you've been encouraged to think about what new life means for you uh, as you um, process uh, the realities that what you were before Christ was one person. Then you came to know Christ. You asked Him to be your Savior. And the Bible says that we are then born again. We're born anew um, many different ways. We're new creations, it talks about. Um, this idea that uh, we are something totally new. We're not just like improved upon, like each year they um, like improve upon the, the cell phones and stuff. It's not like we're like the newer version that has a couple added features. We're an entirely new creation that God has created. Uh, and um, there's a discovery process, as many of you have learned. Uh, once you become a believer, there's this uh, path of discovery that you take, figuring out what does it mean? What, who am I now? Uh, and there's a whole identity crisis that should occur as you begin to process. Because before you knew Christ, you were uh, your accomplishments, you were your work, you were your statuses, uh, whether that was mom or dad or husband or wife or uh, CEO or employee or whatever those terms were, um, we didn't have a whole lot of uh, identity statements that went beyond this world. And then we become this new creation and we begin to identify with the God of creation. He tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are His children adopted into the family of God. He calls us righteous. He calls us holy. And I, I can only think of, if you've ever read the story of Gideon, and an angel shows up, uh, and I'm a little trivia for this morning, where does the angel find Gideon in the, at the beginning of Gideon's story? Yes, he's in the wine press, which was made for wine, threshing out grain because he was afraid that uh, the Philistines would see him uh, with the grain and they'd steal it and they'd take it away. And so he's cowering in this wine press and the angel shows up. And do you know what the angel calls him? It always moves me. I love it. Angel shows up to Gideon, afraid in a wine press, and says, mighty man of valor, mighty man of God. And it's like, wait, hold on. Is that angel a liar? No, he speaks something into existence, into Gideon's life that doesn't yet exist. Because like we talked about with communion, God doesn't see tomorrow like we do. To him, tomorrow's, the difference between tomorrow and yesterday is irrelevant because he is God. 
And so the angel shows up and he calls Gideon, mighty man of valor. And Gideon must be thinking like, they sent the wrong angel to the wrong person. <laughs> and then what happens? There's this, this story unfolds and Gideon leads a mere 300 men against a countless army and God wins the victory. And, but Gideon had to be willing to go. And though there was a rocky process, you know, laying out the fleece and all the other things, the words of that angel became truth in Gideon's life. And um, maybe for you, these concepts of new life, uh, you think like, okay, that'd be really great. Yeah, righteous, holy, co-heir with Christ. It sounds really good, but that's not me. Maybe God is speaking something into existence in your life that's not yet a reality for your brain to catch up with. But if you are a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are those things that God speaks over us. Those identity statements are true of you. And if, you, uh, if you've been reading Colossians chapter 3, depending on the version that you read it in, uh, you would probably have come across, uh, if your Bible has headings and things like that, um, I know in the, the New Living, it, the title of it is actually the title of our sermon today. It's Living the New Life. So knowing that you have new life is good, but learning how to walk in that is what's important. Knowing uh, what does it look like to live as this new creation? How do I embrace this new life that God has brought us? Um, chapter 3 is, in my opinion, one of the uh, most powerful parts of Colossians as it begins to look at, okay, now, if you are a believer, this is what it should look like. So if you have your, uh, your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open that up. Uh, you can follow on the screen if you don't have that with you, and I'll be reading mostly out of the New Living Translation today. Um, but you want to open it up to Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 1. It says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. So there are times when uh, the version that we use for uh, preaching most of the time, um, the New Living Translation, I, one of the things I really love about it is it's super readable, um, but it's not great for good in-depth Bible study because um, it doesn't really give a word-for-word -word translation, but more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation. And so if you're going to do in-depth Bible study, I highly recommend don't use the New Living Translation um, because uh, specifically here, uh, the first verse of chapter 3 is one of those that I think the New Living Translation really misses the mark. Uh, in the New Living Translation, it appears here that uh, chapter 3 starts with the assumption that they have, that the readers are all believers. Uh, and I think there doesn't exist a church on the face of this planet that every single person that sits there on a Sunday morning is a believer. Uh, that can be a little bit of a frightening thought to think about this morning, but um, it's a reality. Um, if you look at averages and things like that, um, it gets even a little bit more scary. They say, you know, on average, most churches, uh, people that are there are 70% um, believers. Um, so that means 30% are not. So to make this assumption that everybody hearing this sermon or in their time, everybody hearing this letter would have been believers, I think is, it's totally missing the mark because that's, that's not what Paul was doing. Paul was not making an assumption that everybody that read his letter would be a believer. In uh, a clearer translation, like if you're going to do in-depth Bible study, one of my favorites is the English Standard Version, the ESV. Um, it reads, instead of an assumption, it reads as a conditional statement. 
Uh, and in, so in, in a version like the ESV, Colossians 3.1 reads, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I wouldn't want to move forward with an assumption of anything, um, and so um, we're going to talk about this verse from the ESV instead of the New Living Translation because uh, this entire chapter is a conditional chapter. The rest of chapter 3 means absolutely nothing if you don't know Jesus. It's completely useless. And honestly, for me, uh, it is a little bit, uh, I think we do a disservice to people. Uh, The church has for a while when we try to create really good non-Christians. When we make it about behavior modification, we say, well, uh, you know, really being a Christian is about acting this way and about um, doing things this way and about uh, everything looking like this. And so people get this idea of like, okay, wow, okay, if that's all it takes, I can do that. I can make my life look really good, but it starts with a relationship with Jesus. And we can skip over that part and just worry about the outer layer and what things look like. And uh, we don't want that. So we don't want just the assumption that everyone knows Jesus who's reading this. Um, I think you have to stop for just a moment if we're reading a verse that says, if then, to ask yourself, is this true? Are you the if-then group? If then you have been raised with Christ. Have you experienced new life? It's a pretty simple question to ask of a believer. Have you experienced the new life that comes from a relationship with Jesus? Have you ever had that transition from old life to new life? Because, I mean, our series is called New Life. It's all about new life. And you may have been confused. You may have been uh, kind of like, ah, oh, well, this series is it's good, but I don't know what relevance it has on me. And there may be a reason for that, and we have to pause. And what, what I don't want us to ever do is just read Scripture and think about it from an intellectual perspective, but really evaluate what does this have to say to me specifically, because I'm the reader, and God is using this, His Word of God to interact with me. We have to ask ourselves if we've met the conditions for the rest of what Paul is about to say. Have we had that regenerative work? Have we become new creations? Or did we just dress up the old creation to make it look like a new thing? I don't know if you've ever had to do that, if you've ever had to try to restore something because you couldn't afford a new one, so you just tried to make the old one look as good as you possibly could. Um, and in some cases that works, um, but in many cases it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's just another layer of paint on that. That doesn't look any better at all. Uh, you didn't actually do the effort of stripping it down and repainting or whatever the thing would be. But just dressing up our old self doesn't work. And it may work for your friends and it may work for some of the people around you, but Jesus will not be fooled. One day we will have to stand before him. And if you're not sure on this side of heaven, if you've experienced new life, there is no thing that is of more importance to you than to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've experienced new life, and you are walking as a new creation. Because as Paul is stating here, if then you have been raised with Christ, our sights should be set on the realities of heaven. So what are the realities of heaven? I think, again, sometimes we just kind of blow right through a scripture. If you've been reading this all week on your own, hopefully you kind of had that thought of like, what, 
What are the realities of heaven? What specifically is Paul speaking about here? What does it mean to set our sights on the realities of heaven? How do we set our sights on the realities of heaven while we're stuck in this earth? When we turn on the TV and we see all the news around us, when we drive by the gas pump and we see the prices climbing every day, how do we set our sights on the things of heaven? Well, Paul covers it a little bit in the next verse, in verse 2. He says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. My guess for many of us is we spend a lot of time thinking about the things of this earth. Thinking about whether it's economics, whether it's family stuff, whether it's work stuff. We spend a lot of mental energy focused on the things of this earth. Now, some of it's necessary. We have to. You have to actually expend mental energy. If you have a job and you, you, know, you have things to do, then by all means, you have to expend some of that mental energy on the things of this earth. And this isn't saying that, well, to think about the things of this earth is sinful. It's not, it's not the aim or the goal of this verse. It's to say, as a general Check. Okay, I'm back. The focus on the things of heaven, that our mindset is on the things of heaven. Um, and to me, when I think about this, I think about driving. Um, most of us, hopefully, um, when you're driving, your main focus is out of the windshield. There it is. Actually, is it working without me knowing it's working? Is that on? Sorry for that. Many times when this happens, I am firmly convinced there's somebody who doesn't want us to hear this. Not that every little problem is the enemy, but uh, that thing dies when it wants to. And uh, I don't like it. Anyhow, focusing on the things of heaven, setting our mindset. So when we're driving, hopefully, your main focus is out the windshield. But that doesn't mean that your side view mirrors and your rear view mirror are of no importance. You should use them. <clears throat> Let me say that for anybody from New Jersey. You should use them. I know, it was going to be funnier when Mike Edler was going to be here because, or the Durs, because they are from Jersey as well. I wouldn't just be making fun of my wife, but... Um, Yes, you should use those things, the side view and the rear view mirrors. Uh, if you spend all your time focused on them, you're going to have a problem. And I think that's similar to the analogy of us living our life. Absolutely, you're going to need to think about the things of this earth. But as a primary rule, look out the windshield. And the windshield are the things of God. He is what should be our focus and the realities of heaven. I think Paul, in another letter that he wrote, he goes in a little bit more detail here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy 
of praise. This is where our heart and our mind should be. As we encounter news that is tough to hear, as we see things around us that are difficult to grasp, as we wrestle with a job that we might not fully enjoy and it might be really frustrating, we can wrestle with that as our side view or our rear view mirrors, but our focus should be on the things of God and everything should be seen in light of that, in light of who God is and the realities of heaven. And if we're putting the effort in, and it's, it does take discipline. If you've not realized this, if you haven't lived long enough to realize that it takes discipline to focus on those things that are true and honorable and right and pure, it does take some discipline, especially in tough moments, especially in seasons where things seem really dark and, and depressing or, or, or out of our control to focus on the realities of heaven. And that's, why, that's where Paul is getting here. So I think another question to ask ourselves this morning is how often are our thoughts fixed on these concepts? Hopefully Sunday mornings is not the only time that you're focusing on the realities of heaven. As you think about God because you're here in church and then you compartmentalize your life, go home, and and it becomes all about this world and your kingdom through the rest of the week. I hope that's not true, that you get in the discipline of constantly resetting your mind, because this world will always try to pull your focus into the things of this world. It'll always want your attention, kind of like the person behind you with their high beams on. Um, Makes you keep wanting to look in your rear view, but don't do it. It's good to know it's there, but keep focusing out the front and focus on where you're going. Remember, when the disciples, they asked Jesus how to do something. It's one of the, um, in my opinion, the most mislabeled things in the Word of God. As people call it the Lord's Prayer, it's not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was not praying. He was giving them a model, but they asked Him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And there's a reason for that. We've covered that before in the past of how much power they saw in Jesus praying. His praying did things. It, it, it was the source, and they recognized that, and so that's what they asked him to teach them. Well, as he's giving them this model, one of the things Jesus models to them is to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's an awesome prayer to pray, that God would bring the realities of heaven to the realities of this earth. And let me just ask you a question. Uh, I don't know if you're big into like watching fights or UFC or boxing or whatever, but when you're pitted against two fighters, uh, who do you think is going to win, heaven or earth? Uh, I'm going to go with heaven. So when the realities of heaven collide with the realities of earth, I think heaven's going to win. Uh, there's more power behind there. Uh, and so praying that into existence that the realities of heaven would be here. If we're really going to follow Jesus' model of prayer, we need to focus on the things of heaven and seek out God's will so it can be done on earth as it's already being done in heaven. See, that's one of the realities of heaven, is that in heaven, God's will is done and accomplished in perfect order. On earth, not so much. And so to be focused on the realities of heaven then is to be focused on, among many things, okay, God, how can I accomplish your will here? Because that will bring heaven to earth as your will is accomplished within my sphere of influence, with what I have control over, what you've given to me to steward. I can make your will done here on this earth. And that takes a lot of focus on the realities of heaven. 
Paul's also pointing out in this verse that while Christ died, he is still alive and is currently seated at God's right hand. That's one of the focuses that, that uh, Paul points out many times in this book of Colossians uh, is that Jesus is still alive. He's not this past deity. He's not this past God, this thing of the past. Um, they all know that he died in that, in that time era. That was not a secret that Jesus was crucified. And P, uh, Paul makes it a point to point out often, yes, he died, but he rose again, and he still lives today. Amen. And it's still just as true today as it was when Paul wrote those words. Moving on to verse 3. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. This is one of the verses that I, I read many times in the Word of God. And then God opened my eyes to it one day when I was in the Word. And it was just a, one of the handful of really, really cool moments I've had with God. Um, but it really hit me what this verse was saying. Paul's really sharing this crazy concept here that we can just brush over if we're not focused on it. And I think it's kind of two things. First, as Paul has covered extensively in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians, we have died to this world and our way of life, to our old life and to our way of doing things. We died to, the, uh, to us being on the throne of our lives. We died to our independent selves. We died to being a slave to the things of this world and, and the desires of this world. Baptism uh, represents us dying with Christ as we are submerged in the water. That's part of the symbolism. It's as we go under, it's as if we're buried with Christ. And then as we come out, we're being raised to new life. But this idea that our new life is hidden with Christ in God is what gets me. As I've meditated on it over the years since God really brought this to my mind, I, I see two things. First is that who we are is hidden with Christ in God, just as what it says. So the more we learn about God, the more we learn about ourselves. As we encounter more of His peace, His patience, His goodness, His kindness, that's what we are to put on. Not to improve our peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Not to improve upon all of our qualities, but to put on the qualities of Christ, the, the, the person of Christ, as we are to adopt more of His personality. So literally, as we learn more about Jesus, we learn more about ourselves. The longer you journey as a Christian, the more you learn about who you are, because you are this new creation. And as you engage God, as you walk this journey, you begin to learn like, wow, I have this passion that I never had before. I really love, whatever it is, to teach kids. I never wanted to do that before. But I, as I've journeyed with Jesus, I got involved with this. You know, I, I offered to cover somebody's children's church one time and, or join them as they taught children's church and found out, like, I really enjoyed that. I never expected that. And you begin to learn more about yourself as you journey with Christ, as you learn more about who He is and, and the way that He operates. You will learn more about yourself because who we are is your, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Now you can learn a whole lot more about your desires without focusing on Christ, but to learn more about who you have been created to be, you've got to spend time with Jesus for that. Second thing that I think comes from this, this new life that we live, we live only in part on this side of heaven. So literally, as when Christ returns, as the next verse alludes to, what is currently hidden 
will all be revealed to us and to the whole world. When Jesus returns, the realities of who we are, I mean, it's one thing to know, like, yeah, I'm the co-heir, uh, I'm a co-heir with Christ, and we can understand only just a, a small fraction of that. Man, you step into heaven, and you begin to experience what it is to be a co-heir with Christ. You will become intimately aware that you had no idea what that meant on this side of heaven because it means so much more than we could ever imagine. And so, so much of who we are is still hidden with Christ in God because it's not until he will, he will return and bring us to him that we will experience this beautiful uh, realities of who we are. Verse four. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Now this would have been a powerful thought for the Colossian church, because you had places like Jerusalem and the Roman church in Rome and places that had like the Colosseum. If you've never been, um, Jackie and I had the privilege of being in Italy and actually staying in Rome like two blocks from the Colosseum. Um, and it's imposing, like it's, it's incredible. Even now, it's pretty incredible. But to be alive during that time and to see these architectural structures and, and the, these uh, huge city centers with all these people and all these things and you had uh, places where you know people would come together just to discuss all of these you know fancy ideas and thoughts and and um, all of this stuff going on and then you have Colossae which is really kind of like a little podunk town not a whole lot going on there not a whole lot to write home about. It's not like anybody ever passed through Colossae and is like, oh my goodness, I went to Colossae and it was this amazing trip. It's like, well, I went through this town, I blinked and we, you know, we were already through it, even on a horse. And so they, they don't have, they're not a city of importance. They're not a city of great renown. And Paul ensures them though that when Jesus returns, that they will share in his glory just the same as anybody from any town. And that the glory of Christ, if you really focus on, if you think about it, if you're focused on the realities of heaven, then you know, man, Rome has nothing on heaven. New York City has nothing on heaven. Whatever your favorite city in the world is, it's got nothing on heaven. But to focus on the things of this world, I don't care how big your house ever gets, I don't care how nice of a car you ever have, I don't care how good your lawn ever looks, it's never going to compare to heaven. His glory is what we should seek. Not the glory of our HOA or the glory of our neighbors or the glory of this world saying, wow, there's a person of success. We should be focused on His glory. It's going to matter so much more. And when Jesus is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. What a beautiful time that will be to just sit in God's presence, unhindered by this world, and just bask in his glory. And we get to share in that. What an awesome thing. And I encourage you, make that a disciplined part of your week. It's just sitting and focusing on some of these realities. As Jack and I were driving home from uh, Memorial Day, you know, I love the greenness of summer. I hate when it gets over 75, but I love the greenness of summer. Uh, and as we're driving along, and it was a beautiful day on Monday, and it, it got crazy hot, but um, as we're just driving through the hills of Pennsylvania and seeing just the beauty of it, I'm like, man, 
just focusing on this idea that man, once we enter heaven, uh, I, I, when you read the word of God, you know the world is recreated and um, you know basically destruction falls on the earth, but there's a new heaven and a new earth and, and all these things. And it's like, man, I, I can't wait to just sit on the new earth someday with no agendas, nothing else to do, literally for like the next bajillion years because we now will live for eternity. And I can just sit and just sit in the beauty of God's creation and just get to enjoy all that he is. And man, that's an awesome practice to be in. You might not be an outdoors person like me, but uh, whatever those realities that really touch your heart and just focus on the, those things that are excellent and pure and lovely and good. Focus on those. Make those a, a part of your day. Don't just let the things of this world override everything else and get so caught up in how broken and messed up this world is. We will share in His glory, not because we're great, but because of who is residing within us, the presence of the Holy Spirit. It isn't just a a good religious focus to know Jesus. He is their life. He's not just a good add-on he is now the source of our life. And he's telling this Colossian church, you know, this, this Jesus who is now the very core of who you are and what, how you operate and how you make decisions and how, what makes you smile, what brings you joy, why you get up in the morning, you will share in his glory. He's the very reason for our existence. The next verse starts with so. In the New Living Translation, other translations will have words like therefore, which is you read the Word of God, hopefully you're actually focusing on what you're reading, and when you come across a so or a therefore, uh, what it means is, okay, we're switching thoughts here a little bit, but everything that we're about to talk about is based on what I just said. So if I'm talking and say therefore, basically I'm summing it up, and I'm saying based on this information, I'm going to make another point, is what Paul is saying. Uh, Based on all the facts that Paul has just presented, now you can think of it, um, just remember that we made up the whole chapters and verses thing in the Bible. Um, Those were not initially there. Paul didn't sit down and say, okay, chapter 3, verse 1, and begin to write that. Uh, He just wrote a letter, and then we decided where to break it up and and how to have it. So I would say what Paul is getting at here is based on more than just the beginning of chapter 3, but based on chapters 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3, he's about to move on to another thought. Based on the reality that we have died to this world and have been raised with Christ, Paul is going to call the Colossian church to a higher standard of living because we are not of this world any longer but are citizens of heaven. Because we have died, because we have been raised to new life, because Jesus is our entire reason for existence, Paul is going to call the Colossian church to a higher standard of living, which, again, try to remind yourself uh, constantly who he's writing to. This Colossian church is full of a lot of ex-pagans who had a lot of pagan beliefs, pagan rituals, pagan uh, lots of stuff, a lot of junk there, 
of ways that they would try to appease God, way that, ways that they would try to win His favor, ways that they would try to earn something from whatever deity they were serving. And Paul is switching them from that mentality to saying, okay, you died to all of that. Now, Jesus Christ resides in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, it's not a should do this. It's just a reality of these are the things that uh, we must do as part of this new life. Uh, When your doctor sits you down and says, okay, your cholesterol is at a dangerously high level. It's not, I hope you don't hear him making like nice suggestions, (laughs) What he's probably saying is, if you want to live, this is what you're going to do. It's not a guilt trip. It's not a, well, you should do this. It's a, if you don't, pretty bad things are going to happen. Um, your health is dependent upon this. And so that's how I kind of, I, I, I read verse 5. It's not a, well, if you want to be a really good Christian, these are the things you should do. But instead, uh, as Paul is writing this, he's saying, okay, based on all of this, therefore, put to death, the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And I don't want us to get this mentality when we read the Word of God to think, oh, what, what Paul is saying is we really shouldn't do these things. That uh, We talked a little bit briefly last week about um, trying to get gospel results uh, through moral pushes of, well, you, if you're going to be a really good Christian, this is what you should do. That, that's, a, that's a moral, stand, you know, moral ide- ideology to get a gospel result. Of course we want people to follow the things of this verse. But until you realize that when you do the things that Paul is saying that we should have nothing to do with, Paul, God's not sitting up there going, shame on you. We're literally sucking the life out of ourselves when we're engaged in these things. We're literally dying spiritually as these things happen, now, of course, we can't die, so I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but we are completely draining ourselves of energy, and we wonder why we're miserable, why we feel distant from God, why we're constantly depressed, and, and we just can't feel the worship, and, and we stand on a Sunday morning, and all we think about are all the things that we don't like, and we complain, and when we get together with Christians, we don't talk about Jesus, and we're not excited about it. It's because we're looking at this as a should do instead of This is how we live this new life, is to follow these kind of things. Paul calls us to put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within us. Uh, I think sometimes we we do. We skip over some of this language. Like, what does it mean to put to death something? Just stop doing it? I think sometimes that's what we think that means. To put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within us. It doesn't just mean stop doing it. Because we have to understand what he's saying here. Uh, I like the word that the New Living Translation uses here, this lurking within us. But to put to death something that's lurking within you, you you can't just stop doing it. It's already in you. To stop doing a behavior will not kill that which is lurking. And just to define it for you, think about this. Think about the uh, sinful earthly things within you and think about this. They're remaining, these are the definitions of lurking, remaining hidden so as to wait in ambush. And of an unpleasant quality, present in a latent 
or barely discernible state, although still presenting a threat. Ooh, man, that got me this week as I was reading that. I was like, whew, yeah, there are things, sinful earthly things, that will sit and wait and just wait for the right moment to ambush us. Right, wait for the, that one bad day we're having to ambush us. Or barely discernible with state, although still presenting a threat. What we must acknowledge about the sin that Paul is about to address is they don't just happen out of nowhere. It's not that we as Christians can walk around and go, out of completely nowhere I found myself in the midst of sexual morality. It's not how it works. When you fall to things like that, if you've ever, uh, I'm sure none of us have escaped the Christian life without finding out about a, a leader, a pastor, a, a somebody who, who's a believer who fell into sexual immorality. Uh, it didn't just wake up that morning and go, you know what, I think I'm going to fall to sexual immorality today. What, they, what happened is they allowed things in their life to lurk. They're allowing things to just lurk in their life. Are, and that's what happens with the sin in our life. It's birthed through the lurking thoughts and desires that we allow to roam in our minds and our hearts unchecked. By allowing things in through the things that we watch, we listen to, and we engage in, uh, we think, oh, I can watch whatever I want. I can, you know, media has no effect on me. I can play whatever video games I want. It doesn't have any effect on me. I can, all, I can allow all this stuff in, and it doesn't have any effect over me. We're allowing the things of this world to lurk. Now, it may not have manifested as a specific sin yet, but it's lurking. And I, that, man, that definition of lurking really hit me this week, to remain hidden so as to wait in ambush. I don't know about you, but I don't want something ambushing me, especially in a weak moment, in a bad day, when you're fighting with your spouse. You do not want the things that you've been watching from that television show or those movies to ambush you in that weak moment. Because that's when the things happen that wreck marriages and damage families and ruin churches. It's when we just allow things to lurk. We act surprised when we give in to the temptation that we thought we could overcome, that we thought we had the strength and discipline to fight against, but we had no idea about the ambush that was planned against us. When Paul is telling us to put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within us, again, you can't just decide to stop if you haven't even started a sexual immoral thing. That's those leaders. They, they weren't actively engaged sometimes in sin until they were, until they were ambushed by the things lurking. So what I see Paul telling us here, what I interpret this as is you can't just stop doing a sin to put to things to death. What we have to do is cut off the lines of supply. That's how you put something to death. You cut off, it, even a human being, you cut off the lines of supply of air, of blood. That's how human beings die. And that's how the things of this world die. You want to kill a tree? Cut off the lines of supply. And then it will die. Slowly or sometimes quickly, it will die. And so that's what I see Paul calling us to, is cutting off this, the lines of supply to the sins, that, the, the earthly things lurking within us. If you're constantly struggling with lust, 
just declaring you're done with lust is not very, it's about as useless as one of my favorite shows was The Office. And if you've ever watched The Office, there's a scene, uh, if you know Michael, uh, the, the lead character, the boss, he's like a comically dense person. And as he's going over his finances with his accountant, uh, the accountant tells him, like, Michael, you're, you're completely broke. You have no money. You're upside down in your mortgage, everything. You know, it's, you, what, and he suggests to him, what you need to do is declare bankruptcy. And so Michael, in his normal comical self, walks to the middle of the office and says, I declare bankruptcy. And then they have to explain to him, like, that's not how you declare bankruptcy uh, and get out of a bad financial spot. And so many believers, that's what we do with sin. I declare I'm done with it. We don't stop watching the shows that we're watching. We don't stop thinking the thoughts that we're thinking. We don't stop looking at the things that we're looking at. We don't stop listening to the things that are creating the lurking, worldly things within us. And we wonder why we keep falling. But I declared it. I declared I was done with it. You didn't cut off the lines of supply. Those lines were continuing to feed the worldly, sinful things within us. And so don't be surprised when they ambush you in the wrong moment at the worst time in a bad place. They will. That's their entire reason for existence. The worldly things. That's why they exist. You shouldn't be surprised or offended when they assault you in an ambush in a weak and terrible moment. That's why our method of making big declarations and a pattern of failure has wrecked so many believers and even created in our minds this idea that God must be powerless. He never helps me. I cried out to him to to take this away from me and he didn't take it away from me. Yeah, he told you what to do right here. He told you to cut off the lines of supply and you refused to do that. You wouldn't give up that TV show because it's your favorite TV show and you just loved it so much. But it was constantly feeding the sinful, lurking things. And so you continued to be ambushed. I think an uh, awesome prayer to come out of this verse with is to ask God to show you the lines of supply for that sinful behavior, to that thing you've been struggling with. Ask Him, Lord, where is this getting fed? Where is this getting fed from? Because uh, what I'm reading from Paul here is to put to death these sinful earthly things. And so I need to find out where they're getting fed and I've got to cut it off there. And then watch as that sinful earthly thing shrivel and die within you. And as the things of God can now bloom in your hearts and grow unhindered now because of all the stuff that has died that is of this world. Evaluate very critically your entertainment, your social media life, anything your eyes see throughout the day, anything your ears hear throughout the day. I know some things you think are unavoidable, like conversations at work or things like that, but if you need suggestions on that, just come talk to me, because I've had, I've been, and or talk to some other people in our, in our church that are around really bad work situations, and there's some ways to take care of those things, and ways to, to do your best to cut off the lines of supply of improper thoughts or, or, or things that are in our lives, but there's also a lot of things that are totally within our control that we can do to cut off the lines of supply of sin in our life. We just need to put in the discipline, the effort, and lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. 
to give us the guidance to know the discernment between them and to do whatever we have to do to make sure the things of this world die out in our life. Find out how the sin is being supplied and cut it off. And that goes for every one of the things that Paul's addressing. We're actually, we'll stop there. We'll jump into the specifics of this next week. But I want you to really wrestle with that this week. Wrestle with, first, do I know what new life is? Do I constantly find the conversation confusing? Do I have confidence in the new life that Christ has created in me? Or is it still just a, a concept that I can grasp mentally but have no actual experience of? I, 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 in our Sunday morning class this morning, we were talking about the whole marriage concept and idea and how uh, you know, to be married, there has to be like an actual relationship. And before I was married, I had a concept of what I thought marriage was. But I think for most of us, we got married and we're like, oh, that's nothing like what I thought it was. Like, my, my wife doesn't worship the ground I walk on? What? Like, she doesn't live to serve me? What? I have to serve her? Oh. Yeah, I had a concept of what marriage was, that everything would be wonderful and, and amazing, and, uh, and it's tough. It's a lot of work. It's actually better than my mental concept was, and I think that'll be true of you if you don't know Jesus yet. Whatever mental concept you have of walking with Jesus, it's going to be a lot more work than you think, and it's going to be a lot more death than you think, but man, it's so much more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And so I encourage you, if you're not confident in that, if you're not confident that you have that new life, do not just shrug it off and go another day. Talk to us. Have a conversation with us about it. We'd love to talk to you about that. But if you do know Jesus, if then you have been raised with Christ, then think about the things of heaven. Focus on the things of God and be disciplined in cutting off the lines of supply to the things that are lurking within you. Be diligent in that effort. Ask God to give you clarity and lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. Be ever more desperately dependent upon Jesus for everything that you know is absolutely necessary for you to learn and grow. Now, most weeks, I forget this, uh, or most months, but uh, so you know, Communion Sunday we always uh, offer, well, it's, it's open every Sunday, but specifically on Communion Sunday. So if anybody needs healing, if anybody needs prayer, you're welcome to come forward and our elders uh, and maybe even some of our deaconesses will make their way up to the front um, for just a few moments after the service. And if you need prayer, come on forward. Um, there's usually a person standing in the back with a collection plate. That specifically is not for your tithe, um, but for the benevolent offering. So um, that enables us to help people in need that, that are within our church family. Um, so just want to make sure and clear that you guys, uh, every, every one of us understands that and to invite you forward to, for prayer if you need it, either for healing or for any other reason. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are this morning all the things that we have covered this morning, God, I, I just feel overwhelmed with your love this morning, your goodness toward us, all that you have accomplished for us, God. I hope and pray that each person here, Lord, doesn't feel obligated to serve you, obligated to follow you, obligated to lead a certain life, but instead we would be motivated by your love, that we would desperately want to because of all that you have done for us that our desires would be to bring you joy, to bring glory to your name, to live in a way and in a manner that is worthy of the sacrifice you made for us. 
Lord, I pray this, this week, each of us that have experienced new life, that we would focus on you. Think about the things that are of heaven, the realities of heaven, and, and invite them through prayer down to this earth that we would see your will done. Lord, I pray for anybody here or watching that doesn't know you as Savior. Lord, I pray today would be the day of change. Today would be the first day of new life for them. And they would experience the overwhelming joy that comes in a relationship with you. And Lord, for all of us, that we would put to death the things that are lurking within us, the things that only seek to ambush us, and seek for our demise? Would we stop complaining about them, whining about them, falling to them, and be active in cutting off the lines of supply? Lord, I pray blessings over each and every one of us that we would uh, see you work in our lives this week in powerful ways which are undeniable, and we would know you are real because we see you moving in powerful and manifest ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week. Don't forget to sign up for community days back there and come forward if you need prayer. Have a great week.